0: Hi there, my name is Dana Levin, and welcome to the Exploration Medicine Podcast's Field Series. This podcast deals with the history, current events, and future of exploration medicine, and our Field Series takes the mic into the wild to talk to people currently providing care in these remote and extreme environments. This interview was recorded in November, summer of 2017.
1: My name is Megan Doerr. I have, this my second season, we talk seasons down here on the ice, Uh, so my second summer season. I came down here September 1st uh, in Antarctica, and I work here at the McMurdo Clinic. It actually is called a McMurdo General Hospital, but um, we kind of just call it the clinic for short. Yeah. Yeah. I am a nurse administrator is my title, and uh, I kind of do a lot of the background clinic ordering and kind of running and administrating that a clinic needs to have to actually operate. Uh, My background is that I live originally in, um, well, I live now in Portland, Maine, and uh, I've been working up there in a hospital, and I've uh, come back down here now, working there when I'm not in Antarctica.
2: Uh, My name's Mike Dorr, I'm a PA. Uh, It's also my second season here at McMurdo. I'm from Portland, Maine. Uh, worked about 10 years as an emergency medicine PA. I did three years of orthopedic surgery.
0: Just tell me a little bit about like could you describe where we are? It's kind of a unique en- a unique environment.
2: We are at McMurdo Station so we are on Ross Island which is the southernmost harbor in the world. Southernmost port, southernmost open water. Um, we currently are, so McMurdo is at the tip of the peninsula, uh, it is essentially the equivalent of a mining town is what it looks like. It's very industrial that used to be a Navy base. The hospital was built, hospital slash clinic was built in 1970 or 71, I think was the last significant construction. And we're currently sitting in the um, the building housing the hyperbaric chamber. Uh, there's actually a lot of diving that goes on down here for science. So.
0: Good deal. So then, you know, given your given the fact that you've worked here for several seasons and have some understanding of how things work, how does polar medicine operations? How do they? How does it work down here? What do you guys do?
2: <coughs> as little as possible. <laughs> Understood. It's
1: all started. <laughs> Uh, At home, so every person that wants to come to McMurdo um, Has to do a physical qualification. We call that the PQ. Okay, it's a very uh, Long process from lab work to doctor's visit to a full dental visit with panoramic x-ray It's probably the most thorough medical checkup many of the people down here have ever had Um, and then depending on your age your sex and your medical history certain tests can be added on to your physical qualifications so like you've got if you're an older person with a history of a stent then you know you're gonna have more of a cardiac workup than other people Um, so it all starts with that if you get your physical qualification completed then you arrive on the ice to work down here and we are kind of um, here to maintain the health of um, the employees and even the scientists that are down here. Um, everybody has to do this, even if you're a scientist, you have to go through those qualifications. Um, they come in for everything from slip, falls, um, cuts, to, um, you know, we are also here in case, you know, something tragic happens out on the ice, or, you know, bad accidents. We have, you know, a lot of um, equipment operators. You know, basically we have to be a functional ER, a functional ICU, and a...
0: And, and is, it, is it just McMurdo General Hospital, or are there other facilities that you are involved with while you're on the ice?
2: Uh, when the science groups get down here, there are a lot of them that work here in town uh, and go out and do day trips, but there are field camps um, scattered all over the continent when they are out collecting samples, specimens... They can be out for days. They can be out for weeks. They can be out for the entire season, uh, sleeping in a tent uh, out on the ice somewhere. They will take a medical kit with them, basically a ammo box full of medication. And we coordinate medical care by iridium phone or radio with them, hmm. unless they need to be medevac'd out. Uh, there are larger field camps, um, one, sometimes two, that will have a mid-level or a nurse or paramedic with them. Uh, And then there is the South Pole Station, which is upwards of 50 to 60 people I think at times, and there is a physician and a mid-level there year-round.
0: So how how do you determine what supplies are either brought into McMurdo or go out with the field camps?
2: Uh, The supplies that go out to the field camps, that's determined by uh, another company that um, does all the consulting for the science groups and coordinates the logistics of that. We're just the on-ice sort of medical care. Um, So that's all predetermined in the science planning off-season. So the first day I arrive, I have a spreadsheet that tells me which science groups are coming in, who's taking a kit, and who needs which supplies. And that's coordinated with other departments also.
0: Are there field camps that are present in the winter?
2: Uh, No why no. not
0: why, why would they not put field camps out in the winter time
2: uh negative 30 negative 40 degrees with a negative 50 60 wind chill and 24 7 darkness
0: but mcmurdo's a seaside town <laughs> uh,
2: only for a few weeks
0: <laughs> okay so it's basically too harsh in the winter to send people out in the field safely so you mostly it, it, you you do you've had all those operations happen during the summertime
2: uh, yeah, there is science going on in the winter uh, here in McMurdo. There are science groups that are year-round. There's um, atmospheric uh, research that's going on. There are um, There's a LIDAR facility up on one of the nearby hills. Uh, NASA has a satellite tracking station here. I believe that would be the right term for what they're doing. They don't really tell us. Uh, <laughs> think they're hiding the aliens.
0: <laughs> hey guys, it's Dana cutting in here for a second. Um, the ridge line that Mike is referring to is called Arrival Heights and was actually named on the British National Antarctic Expedition in 1904 by Robert Falcon Scott's team. This is the same team that built Discovery Hut and upon landing they noticed this ridge line around the bay in which they arrived and creatively named it. Arrival Heights, along with other creatively named features like Observation Hill and Hut Point. So between the 1950s and today, various radar stations, LiDAR stations, and spectrometers were installed by the New Zealand government and NASA to absorb the Aurora Australis and the stratosphere. It's now one of the many Antarctic specially protected areas limiting human access to prevent interference with the equipment there. But the NASA-restricted access signs, locked buildings, and the name Arrival Heights give rise to one of the more popular Antarctic conspiracy theories. Unfortunately, the only aliens associated with the site come from the invasive species Homo sapiens. Um, okay. Yeah. So then, so, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about coordinating evacuations and, and various things like, like this on the, on the base. But, so let's, we'll get to that stuff in a moment. But as a general overview, how many people are you talking about being here?
1: uh the census is actually posted i think right now here at mcmurdo station uh, we have about 800 and f- close to 850 give or take you know with flights going in and out mm-hmm. um and yeah so here yeah we so winter is around about 200 uh and like i said yeah, there's a, a less. maybe less yeah doctor and a mid-level for that and then as the they call it the main body as october starts you mm-hmm. know Every flight comes in, we get lots more people, and so that's when we also start loading up our medical um, groups here to make sure that we can cover uh, the number of people that are here.
0: Gotcha. Do, do you find that you have sufficient staffing?
1: <laughs> I think on a day-to-day clinic operation, yes. Um, I think when we do have, like, a pretty uh, involved medevac situation, um, you know, it is nice to have as many people as we have because it does take um, – quite a, quite a few hands to kind of get everything going and moving it's um it's a little, it's, it's more people are needed for that um and then once so if, if there is a medevac you know we might send our flight nurse and a couple other persons and so that also so that also brings down the number of people we have now in the clinic who can help with daily operations so uh, you know if we were only staffed with four and we had one medevac you know we would probably be left with one to run the entire clinic so mm-hmm. it, it's, it's important that we have the number um, for when the bad things happen.
0: So like, h- how often are you sending, how easy is it to get things off the ice? <laughs> well,
2: normally Ooh. in the summer, it's <laughs> not too difficult. In the winter, it's incredibly difficult.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> but for the past week, uh, I don't think we've had a single flight come or go. It's just been mm-hmm. storm after storm after storm, so... Hey guys, one more interruption here. Weather is
0: a real concern there, and if you listen to our previous episodes, you'll have a good sense as to why it's taken so seriously. So for that reason, the meteorologists and station operators have weather condition alerts that are issued based on how things appear. Condition three is the normal, clear weather, calm wind condition, while condition two is high winds, low visibility, and or potentially deteriorating weather, and condition one is extremely high winds or storm conditions. In Condition 1, being outside is prohibited completely, and in some cases, field camps may be recalled. Under Condition 2, you are allowed to be outside within the confines of the base, and most field camps are confined to their tents. Uh, Additionally, aircraft, which are the primary supply line, are often canceled due to weather, because there's very little room for error in landing and navigation out there. So during the time I was there, I think there were 30 planned U.S. Air Force flights, and only 9 had gotten out by the time we left. In fact, my team was delayed by over a week getting off the ice for those weather conditions.
2: We're up to 10 days now without anyone leaving?
1: Yeah. Well, we've been one week bef- since anyone's left McMurdo, and it's been about 12 days since we've been able to get a flight to the South Pole. Oh, wow. So it's it's pretty... Um, and that's... I mean, we've only been here two seasons. Last season, by now, the snow had mostly been gone. Um, but, like, even last night, we were... Um, you know, pretty, pretty high winds, contour. 2 um, So it's, it's, it's difficult to plan for these kind of things. So if a, med- a medevac comes, we can have all great intentions to try to get the sick person off the ice, get them to, you know, a hospital in um, New Zealand, um, but we can only do what the weather will allow us. So it's, it's um, you kind of have to plan for everything and then also have plan B, C, D, and E. And, you know, maybe one of those will come through just depending on the weather windows.
0: Gotcha. Uh, how many people are at a poll right now?
1: Uh, he told me last um, I want to say that his his he, they're actually very high right now. They're up almost close to hundred persons because um, I thought it was going to be very small. But they've they have the ability in the summer to put people outside in warmed tents. I mm. think is what's going on. Um, so they're 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 trying to set them up. But I don't think they can go over a hundred. Was the last I heard.
0: And, and if you needed to get somebody out from that. Area say right now, if there was something that happened, is that what happens if your weather is down and all you're left with are the people out there?
2: They're on their own until a plane can get there.
0: Sounds exciting. (laughs) uh,
2: Same as here. We're essentially set up, have the equipment, have the medications. To have three ICU level patients for three days is sort of our Par level for medications, equipment. Um, <clears throat> so it's a fairly generous amount of supplies, but if there's one vehicle accident or one plane goes down, then that's uh, cutting it pretty tight, I guess.
0: You know, in, in a in a in a much more robust community, you'll have volunteers or EMS or all sorts of other people that can come in and rally to a a mass casualty incident like that does McMurdo have a system for that
2: Uh, yeah we recruit people from the community to uh, to be on an MCI team go through MCI training we do that two or three days a week Uh, the problem is there's always people coming and going Uh, science groups come for a week two weeks at a time sometimes a month Uh, People will come work at McMurdo for a little while and then be transferred to South Pole. So the turnover Gets to be a little prohibitive from the training to get too involved So by the time you have somebody that's really well trained, it's Nearly time for them to leave. So it's a bit of a challenge (laughs)
0: Okay, Uh, and and there is a fire department that does essentially ambulance and search and rescue for other things
2: Uh, Yep, there's actually a fire department. They have uh, two two engines here in McMurdo. They have uh, vehicles specifically for the uh, airfield and another ambulance out at the airfield. Um, So they have two, during the summer, they have two stations staffed all the time. And there's also a full-time search and rescue team and then a volunteer search and rescue team on top of that.
0: Uh, Have either of you guys been around for any of these more dramatic experiences? anything that you can or are willing to share
1: we did have um, one trauma. one trauma last year um, that was not um, did not have a happy ending um, but I think it's it's you know part of the situation here is you know we are um, kind of out here we're extremely remote and um, the reaction time is as fast as we try to get to where we need to be and it, it's not going to be what people are used to so you know, if you get in danger out at a field camp, and um, you know, if you get in trouble, you know, we don't have the ambulance time that you are used to in the states of 10, 15, 30 minutes. Since, you know, it could be almost an hour before we can get to you. So, um, sometimes, you know, when when people get into trouble out on the ice, they have some kind of trauma. Um, you know, you're you're dealing not only with trying to get to them. And get them back here but you know you've got the cold you've got the weather you've got you know trying to find them maybe a storms come through Um, so there's a lot of um, situations I guess Um,
2: an hour to get to somebody would be on a perfect day there are field camps that are 600 700 miles away sometimes so they if they have something serious going on they could potentially be days to weeks before we could you know potentially get to them to get them out
1: yeah i'm used to you know when you're in the states you work in your emergency room and you know you talk about you know the door to cath time for someone having a heart attack and you know you talk about door to ct for strokes and you know here you would just be really happy if (laughs) you get them to the clinic and then you know then you're like okay where's you know i mean um our flights uh, like i said our weather is kind of out just for for Planes to land, but um, our regularly scheduled flight, if it was to take off, we had a flight here, like a plane at our airport, and we were able to take off with a patient. It would still be a five-hour flight, um, minimum, to a hospital.
0: Wow, and, and, and you may not even have the plane on the ice at the time. You might have right. to call them in. Yeah, so it's a lot of coordination. How does that, <laughs> yeah. well, how does that all happen? Like, is that because it's you're talking about Air Force and Private companies and NSF and all these other things how do you how does that logistically happen
2: Uh, it's amazingly I don't want to say easy (laughs) but it doesn't take much to coordinate some things here Um, if we have a medevac and need to get somebody on a plane it's it's really just whatever plane is here or closest no one argues and that can be from an Air Force C-17 a C-130 that's here or somewhere else nearby, or in Christchurch. Uh, there's a contract with an Australian company um, Australian. that uh, flies uh, personnel back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, there's a South African South African Air Force plane no, or a South African company, company that does flights for the for the U.S. and also the Italians and the Korean base nearby. We used them, I think, for three Medevacs last year with the South Africans.
1: Yeah, mm. it's you know it all kind of starts with you know identifying the patient, and, and then it it's just starts with an email. <laughs> we send out a Medevac notice. It goes to a, a, a people that really need to know quick, um, and everybody kind of rallies to it. You know, if you work in air services, you make sure that you know the people are there, the the the, the things that requested the space on the plane is available. You know, if you work in the chalet and your administration, you make sure that you know everyone is aware that you know the 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 that the plane is going to be here, that it's been that they they talk to the people that they're flying the plane and and negotiate. Okay, we need it. You know, we would like to see if you could do this medevac for us. I mean, everybody kind of has a role and and fills that, um, which is really nice. So that medical can really focus on just taking care of the patient and getting the patient to the plane and that kind of a deal. And everybody, you know, HR has a role. Everybody kind of has their part that they play in it. So it's a dance.
2: And and (laughs) people don't say no down here. Mm. If you call somebody and need something, they pretty much find a way to do it or make it happen.
0: So basically that that sounds like that actually works surprisingly well in, in the emergency critical cases. Are there things that that, there are, that are difficult to have happen here, either logistically or just because of where you are?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Equipment. Yeah. Um, well, equipment and staffing. So with what we have here for staffing, we have to become our own x-ray techs, our own ultrasonographers, our own lab techs, um, yeah. along with being the provider uh, oh, we also have a pharmacist, I forgot poor Tian. he's mm-hmm. going to kill me. <laughs> um, the challenges of that and then if a piece of equipment breaks, I mean not just having to learn how to use all of this equipment but it's also having to learn how to tr- troubleshoot you know, all of this equipment. The <laughs> it. And then if something isn't working, it's not usually an easy option to call a help desk somewhere back in the U.S. because they don't really comprehend where we are, and the first answer usually is, "Well, call this person or put it in a box and send us to it, and we'll get it back to you next week." And that just doesn't really work. Yeah. So,
1: a lot of our equipment, we try to have backup. So, we if there's a machine that can do a uh, complete blood count, CBC, you know, we we want to have two of them you know we, we want to be able and in some situations we can you know we don't have just one ventilator we have two ventilators like you know everything should have its backup but at the same time you know equipment starts to kind of show its age it's you know it's hard to to maintain and keep up all of this really you know all this equipment um, with the you know, yeah <laughs> um, I think other challenges that I have you know we've already talked about the weather but you know, you that is always a, a factor. You know, you want to go and, and get out to these people in the field, and you want to be able to help them. And you know, you just you can't get to them as quick as you'd like to. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not the speedy okay. I'm out the door like right when you hear the call. Um, there is some emails. There is some conversation that has to occur um, to try to get all the the pieces lined up and, and get there. Uh, weather and um, I'm trying to think what other. I think, you know, staffing is also quite hard because, um, you know, we are a medical group. We have a lot of um, jobs here. And uh, normally medical is one of those p- those crews here in McMurdo that changes yearly. Uh, so you have coming into a clinic brand new staff every year. Um, it is very rare that uh, Mike and I return this year. We have a lot of people say, wow, you're here for your second season. That never happens. Um and I think a lot of it is that you know, the medical people want to come down here, they want to enjoy Antarctica, but they also want to go back and work in the hospitals they've left, or you know, they, they go and they go to other medical facilities. And so I think that the having to start fresh every year with a new medical crew um, can be very daunting. I, I remember last season you know, trying to learn how to do x-rays and, and how to run my own labs and you know, having to learn all of the steps um, it was it was nice to come back this year and already have that kind of figured out. But so, yeah. so
0: institutional memory and, oh, and that's yeah. <laughs> maintenance, logistics, and equipment failures are probably the biggest challenges. It sounds like
1: mm-hmm. definitely.
2: And it's an organization that's um, it's multiple contractors and subcontractors. So everyone has their own HR. Um, everyone it's a challenge in learning how to make things happen not with patient care but just with Mm -hmm. i need this taken care of or i need this supply Mm -hmm. how do i find it how do i get it or how do i get somebody to come fix the leaky pipe and just (laughs) (laughs) yeah the power's out in this room who do i call it's it's an amazing number of people and
1: yeah, like he's just keeping the computers up to running and making sure that everybody has the computer access they need to do charts and stuff. I mean, that's—I feel like we need our own IT specialist. <laughs> so.
0: Well, yeah, I can imagine that's that's a that's a big enough deal in hospitals <laughs> back home.
1: Yeah. So yeah, but but he's true though. The, the different the different um, so ASC, which is the big um, contractor here, contracts another six organizations to supply the janitors to supply the. Heavy machine operators, you know. So every single group here is almost its own organization, and just trying to figure out who do you call, who is this person's supervisor, you know, and keeping track of that so that you know who you have to talk to for which thing, kind of. Um,
0: so, if, you know, uh, following on that, if uh, since it's people do turn over so much, what kind of training would you expect, or would you would be useful for somebody coming down here or interested in coming down here?
1: the number one thing i think is flexibility you're going to come down here and you need to be able to do i don't want to call them workarounds but i mean you know you've got there's the way that you would like to do it and then there's the way that you're going to do it because this is the supplies you have and and this is the equipment you have and you just you know you got to be flexible enough to be like okay what's going to work and let's brainstorm this and you know it's one thing i think this season we've got a lot of is people who just want to fix the problem you know let's know what's the goal what's the ultimate goal here that we need okay now and let's let's fix that I mean it's like, I think our last simple problem was oh my gosh our cardiology our propac machine our heart monitor machine it ran out of paper you know not a big deal but you know we know that could be months in coming so how are we gonna you know what's the workaround how do we get a picture if we need a picture like you know and everybody kind of coming together saying okay well let's do this and and try to figure out how to you know contact Zoll and figure out how to you know work it work this out so that's one thing i think is is not so much the um a training that you can get in the states but um a feeling of being able to come down here and just make it work
0: so it's less the training it's more the attitude
1: yeah that's for me at least i don't know mike's probably the provider and he sees a lot he he kind of sees the patients and he can probably talk about i mean i would assume gee hypothermia (laughs) crossbite.
2: I don't know. With (laughs) With the equipment, you, well, and with everything, you don't have the depth of resources that you have back in the States. If something goes wrong or if you need something, it's pretty much up to you to figure out how to take care of it. Um, And you have to get pretty creative sometimes. Um, Taking paper from another machine and, you know, marking it or cutting it to fit or Going around station and seeing, you know, which science group may have a piece of equipment that has the same width paper, and just making it work. I mean, that the paper is just a single example, but just things like that. But as far as training to have, um, it's challenging because you're sort of the the occupational health person, you're the primary care person, you're the emergency person, you're the orthopedist, you're the dentist, you're you're everything. Um, we can consult with physicians back in the States by either by email, phone, or, or video teleconference, <coughs> um, but there's only one person that can do the, you're still the one doing the exam and doing everything and just uh, sending off a consult or talking to somebody about it. Uh, you don't really have the backup. I think a lot of people on station would prefer to have an occupational health provider here because that's most of what we see, um, and primary care. Just runny nose, sore throat, flu or flu-like, a lot of back pain, a lot of repetitive use injury. Um, But my attitude on that is none of those are things that are gonna kill anyone. They're uncomfortable and annoying, but when push comes to shove and we are 2,000 miles away from the nearest hospital, I think the people that need to be here are the people that know what to do when something really serious happens and you don't have time to wait. Um, if someone's back pain just isn't getting better, if they've got – I can I can get people comfortable from minor injuries and problems or take them out of work or modify b- their behavior. I can send them to Christchurch uh, if it's something bad enough and I can't take care of it here. But, um,
0: yeah. Gotcha. <clears throat> and is there a – so if somebody is interested in coming down here, how would they do it?
2: at the time of this publication (laughs) uh, medical here is um, contracted through uh, UTMB the University of Texas Medical Branch uh, through Galveston so Mm -hmm. all the medical staffing is done through them so we're technically employees of uh, UTMB
1: but the link would be found on where do they post the the no, no, website
2: usap united states antarctic program uh, usap.gov website links to all the companies that are hiring for all the positions here
1: yeah. cool and there's a, there's a lot of people who are medical who just come down and work in supply you know we've got a lot of just back nurses our recreation department um person who's in charge of all of the rec program she's a doctor <laughs> <It> <laughs> she comes, like a she's an oncologist she yeah. comes down here because this is her you know, she loves it down here. She likes the people, the culture. Uh, there's, it's a, it's a different kind of group of individuals that choose to come down here um, year after year. I mean, we've got people who've been down here 17 years, 20 years. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that they do this for their life, um, and I think, you know, those, the, yeah. So you get a lot of people who come down here for the, for that social cultural. Not, not just for the work.
0: <laughs> yeah, they, they, they seem to do other jobs. I was remembering my, uh, the, the the steward who was preparing foods and getting them out today was, I, I think I think she was a masters in biochemistry.
1: Yep, I Yeah, I, one guy that I know that worked at, at Science Cargo lifting boxes and carrying stuff for the science team, and packing it up. He's a volcanist, and he's down here because this is an amazing you know volcano to study, and he was just kind of hoping to see what he can learn he about it while he was down here.
2: And she's not referring to Star Trek.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
2: He had Vulcan- a
0: volcanologist. PhD
2: <laughs> in volcano science.
1: <laughs> 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 okay. No. Just but
2: there are aliens way. here and <laughs> <laughs> Spock is here somewhere. Oh,
0: <laughs> that's, that's that's the next uh, Star Trek 15. The search for Spock. Yeah. All right. Uh well thank you guys for taking the time out of your day to talk to talk to me and uh, and uh, we'll we'll let you know how things go and yeah. hopefully we'll be able to keep in touch with you.
2: didn't sure. Think if
1: there was any other big thoughts.
2: No, you have to be the dentist too when you're here. Yeah. That's the fun part. How did yeah. you figure that one out? Yeah. Uh. It eight hours of dental training prior to leaving and then here's a dental room with chair drills and composites and everything else and good luck. <laughs> not not so much good luck but um, there's a dentist back in the States that we consult with so I will send the x-rays and even a photo of the tooth and the history back to him and the first dozen or so times I'd consult with him on everyone and then eventually just learn what to do and just start doing it and only consult him if it's complicated or
0: What kind of things are you dealing
2: with? Um, Mostly fractured teeth, lost fillings, uh, infections, um, malocclusion problems. Sometimes uh, people that grind their teeth and fracture cusps off.
0: uh, And this is stuff that is standard in emergency and orthopedic PA training.
2: (laughs) well, the, uh, the right. orthopedics background <laughs> with the power tools has been helpful as far as transitioning to the dental equipment. It's just oh, a lot smaller. It's
0: yeah. <laughs> still similar to bone. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, guys. No problem. Yeah, it was fun. Once again, I am Dana Levin, and thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. A special thanks to our production team, Jeremy Seeker and Emily Stratton, and to Finella Kennedy for inspiring the podcast itself. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on the website at explorationmedicine.com. And as always, feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.